With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 84th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. There's a lot of them out there where my show is located. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. So then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you so much to all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. And also thank you very much for listening and sending me so many great questions and messages. Those are so helpful. My February Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of January. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since actually 2005, but I've been archiving them since 2007. And I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can never be too aware, you know. So uh, you could sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And I'm now also providing free ebooks and awareness videos through my new privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. So you can get those from there and you can sign up for notification about new ones as they come out uh, from that site also. So today I'm covering a topic that I've been meaning to cover for a very long time, especially since we've been going through the COVID pandemic throughout 2020. And I've gotten so many questions about this topic in the past few months that I decided it was time to tackle it. That topic is healthcare and patient data security and privacy. So I want you to consider just a few things before we get started. So consider this first. A recent Imperva Research Labs report said that cyber attacks on web applications that are used in the healthcare sector have increased by 51% since the start of the COVID-19 vaccine distribution just in December. Also, think about this. Thousands of healthcare clinics and hospitals are now using Alexa, Echoes, and Google Homes and other 
virtual smart assistants within their organizations and doing a little bit of research. I found they're doing this in collectively millions of locations throughout their facilities to support patient care. All at the same time that these devices are often creating pathways into hospital systems because of perhaps the way they've been implemented. And they're also collecting a lot of health and patient data Oftentimes, simply by being in the same rooms with the patients and the staff who are caring for them. And one more thing to think about, health data, the value of health data. You know, it's considered gold uh, when you compare it to the value of other personal data. Cyber crooks will pay up to $250 per patient record according to TrustWave and some of their research they've done. So after you've listened to this, now think about this. Is your healthcare data and patient data safe? I know I've gotten a lot of questions about that and asking how that data is being kept safe. Are hospitals and clinics doing all that they can to protect your data? What would you like to ask your hospital about this? Do you know what they would answer? Well, until you get that opportunity, I'm going to be speaking today with an expert in healthcare and patient data security who knows so much about all of this. And I know you're going to learn a lot from what he has to say. Today, I'm speaking with Mitch Parker, Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO for short, and Executive Director at Indiana University Health, or IU Health for short. Mitch has 11 years experience in this executive type of role, and he's established effective organization-wide programs at multiple healthcare organizations. Mitch is responsible for, uh, for providing policy and governance oversight and research. He's responsible for third-party vendor guidance and proactive vulnerability research and threat modeling services. And besides healthcare, he's also responsible for payment card and financial system security within those healthcare organizations and security research at not only IU Health, but also IU School of Medicine. Mitch also publishes a lot of articles in multiple publications. You can do a Google search and find a bunch of them. And he's contributed a chapter for an upcoming cybersecurity and healthcare textbook. Uh, Mitch has also been quoted in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal and Becker's Hospital Review and so many others. Mitch is also a co-vice chair of two working groups for the IEEE. One of them is called Trust, Integrity, Privacy, Protection, Safety, and Security of the Internet of Things, or IoT. And uh, yeah, kind of a long long title, but that's the way it is with a lot of those uh, IEEE groups and other groups. And he's also a co-chair, co-vice chair for another uh, group, Blockchain, in Healthcare and Life Services Cybersecurity IoT subgroup. And so much more. Uh, that he's done. You can see more about what Mitch has done on my Voice America show site. So Mitch, thank you so much. You're such a busy guy. I know you're so busy. So thank you for taking it some time out to be my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. 
Well, there's so much to talk about here, and I know that you you can fill an encyclopedia with um, healthcare security and privacy issues, but I thought it might be very helpful for our listeners to really understand the breadth and depth and complexity of healthcare organizations, especially of the enterprise that you're currently responsible for. So I'm wondering, could you give us just a feel for like the numbers of locations where you have oversight and how many patients fill them up and the number of staff and contracts and business associates who are part of your scope of responsibility? So I can start off by the numbers. IU Health has 17 inpatient facilities right now. We across the state of Indiana, we have numerous other outpatient sites across the state, and we have over 35,000 team members that service those sites between IU Health and IU School of Medicine. And we have now with telemedicine and COVID reached not only in the state of Indiana, but also nationally. So mm-hmm. we're very, we're very busy. Telehealth, yes. That was that something that you already had in place before COVID, or was that something that you realized, uh oh, we need to get this put into place pretty quick, you know, last year? Well, we had telemedicine before COVID and we've got an incredible telehealth leader in Ian McDaniel. However, we upped our volumes by several thousand percent after wow. COVID hits. Yes, I can imagine. I mean, everybody's that hit everybody so hard with regard to doing things remotely. Um, But I want to talk now about some of these technology threats. I'll I'll start with those. There's so many different kinds, of course, and you know that. But just for the so our listeners um, understand, too, we have a very wide range of listeners, too, Mitch. We got folks from high school classes and college classes, in addition to folks who are practitioners and have um, many decades of experience. So very wide range of, of listeners. And I know that all are going to learn a lot about this, but with regard to technology threats and your very diverse geographically located and spread out uh, healthcare enterprise, what's the most challenging technical information security or privacy threat that you as a CISO uh, have to deal with it daily. And I'm going to start off with in saying that you don't know what you don't know. And the greatest challenge that any organization has, and this is not just IU Health, this is everyone, is understanding what's in your environment on a daily basis. Healthcare is very dynamic. You have patients bringing their own devices in. You have telemedicine we're starting to see significant uptick in the use of Internet of Things. Every provider is. And with the upcoming extensions to cellular service in 5G, we're going to start seeing the cellular networks now being used a lot more for patient care and telemedicine, even more so than they are now. So Mm -hmm. I would have to say the greatest threat that a health system faces right now is not knowing what they do not know and not seeing what they can't see, if that makes any sense. Because there's a lot of 
emphasis out there on seeing what you have. And there's a lot of people that claim they can see everything, but we consider that a false sense of security Mm -hmm. because there's a variety of technical and non-technical threats. And I'll give an example of that. Uh, Yesterday, there was a hospital in New York that came out on the news that one of their team members had been snooping on patient records for six months until Mm -hmm. they had been caught. Mm-hmm. every hospital or health system has to deal with the unknown and has to be able to respond very quickly to be able to address that. And it's not about being assured that you know what your threats are. It's about having the ability to respond to what you don't know about and being able to size up your situation quickly. Yes. You have so many shadow locations throughout your digital ecosystem within a healthcare organization, right? And then like you talked about, not only all of your staff and workers, what I always find so amazing uh, about CISOs in healthcare um, is that you have to deal with not only, you know, your employees and your staff, but patients are there bringing in their own devices. Um, You also have visitors who are all over the place. You have all these vendors who are probably bringing in a wide variety of supplies and everything else. Um, What, I mean, how do you handle that uh, challenge of trying to to keep track of it all? Because I know, like you said, you can't monitor for everything because you have these devices coming in and out of your facility and maybe dipping in and out of your network. Is that a fairly accurate statement? I would say that uh, the the problems you describe every hospital has, and Mm -hmm. especially with patients. Mm, Yes. And especially now, given COVID, because you have to make sure you maintain that connectivity for patient devices. So anything you have for a patient has to be walled off. And you have a combination of you have to do this for patients no matter what hospital you're in. But in addition, if you're in a combined academic and academic and university hospital setting, for example... You also have to worry about the Higher Education Opportunity Act, which has that little provision in it that says you have to require authentication to all of your core systems that are used to provide services for students. Mm -hmm. So anything you do for patients or guests or anything you can control, the only alternative you have is to literally wall it off from anything involved in patient care. And it's not just me that says this. Mm -hmm. It's... Pretty Hims has said this numerous times. Chime has said it, which is the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, and any number of other organizations, up to and including the National Institute of Standards and Technology, have all made the same recommendation. If you don't know what it is and you can't control it, keep it away from what you can control. And you have to do that for your patients. And again, you it's the the onus of doing it is you've got to keep those lines of communication open because your patients because of covid mm-hmm. need to have that lifeline back to their family because they're probably not getting visitors yes yeah that that's so important well and then talking about the patients another um set of 
computing devices are all of the, the medical devices then. So not only do you have traditionally thought of computers, you have people who have medical devices embedded within their bodies and uh, they're probably communicating with systems, at least some of them. Um, how do you view or, or do you view the medical devices differently from those other more traditional computing systems? How do you kind of attack those differences? And when you take a look at what a medical device is at a base level, it literally is a computer. And I always tell people, 20 years ago, I could have slapped a monitor, a keyboard, and a mouse on it, and that computer that runs your medical device would probably run Windows faster than the computer you had 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and when you think about it, these medical devices, a lot of them run Linux, a lot of them run, there's even some that run Windows, mm -hmm. or it'll run some of the smaller embedded operating systems, which means that you are literally dealing with something that is very scaled down from a standard desktop or laptop or smartphone equivalent, and you have to treat them accordingly. So that means having a good operational plan in place for managing these devices. And what I always like to tell people is, is that medical devices 20 years ago, they were not very sophisticated. They had a processor about equivalent to a Commodore 64. Mm -hmm. And you didn't really have to patch or update the software much because they communicated over serial lines. When you put them so they're communicating over wireless or your wired network or they're using cell connections, they are, for all intents and purposes, a computer that needs to be maintained and a computer that needs to be updated and your operational plans for dealing with medical devices need to include plans for maintaining them at a different level than you would have a number of years ago. And a lot of organizations are still coming to grips with that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of smaller healthcare organizations, many of them don't even have a dedicated team member to handle medical devices. And when you think about the number of small rural hospitals in the United States, and as a fellow Midwesterner, I know you can mm -hmm. appreciate this. Yes. There are people out there that they go to hospitals that if they're lucky, the IT staff is the consultant in town that comes over to helps out whenever they need it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this is a challenge that we have to address because we've brought in electronic medical records and we've brought in medical devices to also help. And the challenge is going to be, how do we effectively, given the new responsibilities of these devices, because they are computers, be able to help out these smaller facilities to be able to maintain them and still maintain a good level of cybersecurity? Yeah, that could be so, because I'm here in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, but Iowa's a very rural state, very similar to, you know, Indiana. So yeah, a lot of small clinics. I visited some of them. And like you said, the the IT folks are the ones who volunteer <laughs> whenever they have time, right? Oftentimes in the small clinics. What I find interesting in so many of the rural areas where you have either tiny hospitals with maybe, I've, there's one that I visited that had 10 beds. 
which is pretty small. I know there's probably smaller, but also even clinics is that, like you said, the IT folks who come in, they aren't even um, considered technically as business associates because they aren't getting paid anything. Um, and what they're doing, they're kind of coming in and troubleshooting and then leaving and never coming back again. They might be technically considered business associates, but I guess my point is they don't go through the rigor of, you know, what business associates would be expected to do, <laughs> signing a BA agreement and so on. Are you seeing that in Indiana as well? And um, how are you dealing with that? So I can't speak for IU Health in that regard. However, in my one of my other roles, I do advise the Indiana Executive Council on Cybersecurity, chaired by Governor Holcomb. And that is a challenge that the state of Indiana as a whole sees because mm-hmm. there are a number of hospitals across the state of Indiana that are incredibly small that don't have dedicated cybersecurity staff. And yes, they do have staff rotating in and out. And in the case of BAAs, it also extends to their legal counsel. You're going to yeah. have the lawyer in town handling your contracts because you're not going to have money to have full-time legal counsel. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and then add on to that, you know, we were, you were talking about some of the older systems. What about legacy systems being um, still in use in a very large hospital system? So you have to to not only keep on top of all the new tech emerging and walking in on two legs in inside your facilities, but you probably still have a lot of really long-term legacy systems that have been around for maybe decades, don't you? Absolutely. And that's more in the area of medical devices that you see that because yeah. a lot of organizations will keep their medical devices around for 20 years. And Mm -hmm. when you think about it, the average life cycle for Windows is 10 years that Microsoft will support it. Mm -hmm. The average life cycle for Linux, you're going to you're going to get good security updates for Linux for maybe seven or eight years for that specific revision of Linux that you're using. And It's a new challenge that a lot of the medical device vendors are facing. With the electronic medical records, Mm -hmm. a lot of them now are delivered as a service, and the vendors that deliver them as a service do a very good job of keeping them up to date. However, the medical devices themselves, that's a much longer life cycle, and they're sold as integrated kits. So I can't expect a small rural hospital to go, I'm going to spend $250,000 for a new radiology modality because the old one runs Windows 2000. Right. That's just not going to happen. That $250,000 is a salary of five people at that hospital. Yeah. Yes. So that's another challenge that we really need to face up to because it's incredibly difficult and you can't expect these smaller organizations to address legacy medical device hardware 
in the current in the current state that they're in. Most hosp- most hospitals have honestly a lot of them have trouble making payroll. Mm-hmm. Right, especially, especially now with COVID, and especially now with some of the re- there was a report on Becker's a couple weeks ago that a number of hospitals across the United States that are rural hospitals are in danger of closing. You yeah. can't. You can't expect those hospitals to go out and spend seven figures to get up-to-date operating systems. So we need to think of more new and creative ways to keep those devices secured at reasonable prices so that these hospitals don't have to make the choice between somebody's livelihood or cybersecurity. Yes. Well, and cybersecurity in hospital with all those devices impacts patient safety as well. Um, I'm wondering, you know, at the beginning, I talked about people's concerns. We have uh, just a couple of minutes here until we go to break. But if, you know, there there are so many concerns people have. If they go to a hospital, what would you tell them if they're concerned about security or privacy of their, their data? What would be the best question that they should ask their doctor while they're there or their nurse? I think the most important question they should ask is, do you know what to do if an event happens? Because and by you're event, not, you mean what? With a, a cyber event. event. Okay, there. So, like if they're, if somebody breaks into the, hacks into the network? Absolutely. Do they, do they know what to do? Do they have, do they have good downtime procedures? And honestly, will they be able to be taken care of if the systems are down? Oh, I love that one. (laughs) That's very important there. (laughs) And while while I actually have received the question from people, will my records be safe? The question shouldn't be whether your records are safe or not. The question needs to be, does the staff know what to do in the case of an event? Ah, I love that. Let, let's leave it there and we'll come back and get into some other um, risks. But right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Mitch Parker, CISO and Executive Director at Indiana University Health. And we're talking about health and patient data security and privacy and security within hospital systems. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as give me some topic situations, uh, suggestions, sorry, using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. 
The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Mitch Parker, who's the Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director at Indiana University Health. And we're talking about health and patient data security and privacy and security within hospital systems and rural uh, clinics and all all types and sizes of, of hospitals. We talked about a lot of the technical um, issues related to protecting data, but I want to get into physical threats now because, you know, when you go to a clinic, uh, you see a lot of paper files and you see a lot of things written, you know, outside of the patient uh, examination rooms and so on. So, you know, Mitch, what would you say is the most challenging physical information security or privacy threat that you as as a CISO has to deal with on a daily basis? Well, Rebecca, I would say that in general with healthcare, Many of the facilities that we have were not designed for electronic medical records. Mm. You're dealing with physical plant in many facilities that you're this 50, 60, 70 years old. Mm. And they literally put computers in wherever they could. And I'll relate a real life story. One of our old neighbors in Pennsylvania broke her arm in a car accident. We had to go visit her in the hospital. We, when we went to visit her, I tripped over three carts, walk, three wireless carts used to used by nurses to access electronic medical records, getting, oh. into, getting into her room. Oh, no. And this was a hospital built in the 1950s. Mm. So. So the biggest physical security challenge that healthcare facilities have to face is the physical plant not designed for computers. Mm. When you had things on paper, when you wrote everything on paper, you could lock it up in a file cabinet. You could lock it up along the wall, and it was pretty easy to do. Now that desk area where you used to have paper has computers on it. That computer screen is on a lot. Mm. And the rooms themselves were not designed for computers. So you can have someone walk by a hall and see a computer screen. Whereas if you had paper on a desk, they would not have been able to see the paper. 
So the greatest physical security challenge you have is how to get physical security working in facilities that do not lend themselves to it by design because they were designed for a paper past. Yes. You know, I grew up in a very rural part of north central Missouri, and my doctor actually had his clinic on the bottom floor of his two-story old house. (laughs) And we would go there, and, you know, I'm still seeing in a lot of these small towns similar situations, and I want your opinion about this situation I see a lot. In small towns, you tend to get to know a lot of people, right? I mean, where I grew up, my father was a superintendent of schools, so everybody knew him, everybody knew me, we knew everybody. So when you would go to the doctor, everybody knew you were going to the doctor. And when you would get there, probably, you know, three or four people who you were, you know, went to class with, school with, or their parents or their relatives worked at the doctor's office because that was considered a good job. So what are your thoughts about, you know, trying to keep people's privacy of their patient records uh, in accordance with HIPAA and also securing them in especially rural areas where you you are in situations where everyone tends to know everyone else. And it's just one of those things where, like, if they call somebody next to go to the back room, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't matter if we say their full name or just, you know, their first name because they know who they are. So, you know, what? how do you deal with, like, the, the small... Um, you know, facilities where basically people know each other so well that it's hard to follow some of those requirements. I mean, you can follow them, but people are still going to know that you went to the doctor and probably, you know, oh, well, something's (laughs) going on with that person. Um, Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Or have you dealt with any small, I know you've, you've worked with a lot of small facilities, but I don't know if you've dealt with those types of situations. I will, I will tell, tell you, you. In, over the years, I have had to deal with this situation all the time because no matter where you're at, healthcare is a very, very small world. <laughs> yeah. So you will deal with this continually. And the way you have to approach this is you have to take an empathic view. And all of your emphasis has to be on Imagine if that was you. Imagine if that was your relatives. And in many cases, it is. And you have to bring it home and say, would you want everyone knowing your situation if it was cancer or if it was very personal issues? And you have to take the approach of what would the effect be? If that happened to you Mm -hmm. and you have to take that view and let people know. So you don't let curiosity get the best of you because ultimately you have to build on the fact that these are your friends, these are your family and you show them respect in everything else. And this is an area where you really need to show your friends and family respects and make sure you don't 
go in that medical record or you don't ask those questions and you respect their privacy because you respect them as your friends, your family, your people you go to church with. Right. Respect and empathy. I think uh, it's very important. I mean, there was a situation I remember, and of course this has been a long time ago, but the situation still occurs, I know, because uh, the town is about the same size still. So I know that this happens, but, um, you know, you go to a basketball game and in small, small locations, small towns, I mean, that's the entertainment for everyone in the county to go to the basketball games. So there was a situation where Dr. Wilson, the doctor for the county, came into the the huge auditorium where the town was and somebody yelled across at, "Hey Dr. Wilson, I saw that, you know, Sue Sue Jones, just a alias there, was at your office. What was she there for?" Of course Sue Jones was sitting right there in the bleachers. <laughs> Um, but you know, he just, you know, smiled and just shook his head. No, like this was before HIPAA, but still, I mean, you deal with these types of situations. I think maybe a good lesson might be, even if people who are not, um, falling under HIPAA requirements are asking you these questions, you're still under those requirements. So you got to maybe remind them that, you know, my, my duty as a, a, a healthcare provider does not allow me to do that because I'm legally not allowed to talk about it. But, you know, that there's just so many situations like that. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of them, too, with all of your work with small, small uh, cities and organizations. Or, like you said, even a large – I mean, you've been at, you've been at some very large uh, cities – I bet it, like you said, healthcare, when it comes to healthcare, it's still a small world because probably people still know each other pretty well if they go to the same hospital that their neighbors go to. Oh, oh yes. And same neighborhood. And when you start getting into some of the smaller subspecialties, doctors will know each other across the country. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a, I had a case we had a new doctor that got onboarded and he was a neurosurgeon. He was having some technical issues. I got involved because I know neurosurgeons. I mentioned where I worked previously and he proceeded to name the former chair and current chair of the neurosurgery department at my previous employer by their first names. Oh, wow. Very small world. So, yeah, it, uh, so there are challenges there when healthcare workers want to maintain security and privacy, there's more than just technical challenges. There's physical challenges. And that kind of leads me into, I don't know if you have any other physical, um, you know, security uh, thoughts to share before I get into a few questions about HIPAA. I don't know if there's any you want to share before we go on. I'll open that up to you. Oh, absolutely. So for physical security, again, there's also one other aspect, and that is the need to secure the computing devices on sites at medical facilities. Mm, mm-hmm. So very often those computers that secure medical records, in a lot of cases, that was part of the telephone system. Yeah. It was an extension of the phone room. So a lot of hospitals have had to retrofit data centers 
into their facilities to facilitate medical devices and electronic medical records. And I have heard of and seen data centers in the craziest possible places imaginable, including in one case, somewhere I worked 20 years ago in the employee break room. Oh, no. <laughs> so a lot of organizations need to figure out, even if it's a closet, put your server somewhere where you can lock them. Definitely not in the break room. Yeah, well, there's so many risks there. I mean, not just for people doing things maliciously, but can you all the hot coffee that could be spilt on there or something else that could bring down a system that you depend on to provide care for your patients? Six feet from the coffee maker. <laughs> yeah, you got to have coffee if you're going to be maintaining the, the computer, though. Come on. So, oh, yeah, so many things. And, and you know, um, you and I have worked in healthcare for a long time, mine from a different uh, perspective, but still with a lot of primarily insurance and, uh, companies, but also the small clinics. But still, we're having to deal with not only security and privacy as a practitioner, but also then you have regulations and probably the, the best known regulation in the U.S. is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, which has been in effect since um, the, the privacy rule went into effect in 2005. Um, but it was passed in 1996. So, you know, it's been around there for a long time. And the the fines and penalties are really starting to be steep and they're starting to come for non-compliance issues. You know, as you, I know you'll recall, uh, Mitch, that it started out primarily after a breach would occur and the investigation would take place, then there would be the fines and penalties given. But now have you noticed there's been at least 13 through uh, Q4 of last year, 13 uh, penalties some of them pretty high, over a million dollars for not complying with privacy rule requirements to give access to patient records when the individual asked to see their records. I did see that. And, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, it was like a flurry of um, attention to that. And then now we have a notice of proposed rulemaking which to our listeners, that means that there have been proposals to make changes to this longstanding regulation. And I don't know, um, Mitch, if you saw the one that came out December 10th, but it has to do with strengthening individuals' rights to access their health record or information, including electronic um improving information sharing and facilitating more information sharing and more disclosures for emergencies and reducing administrative burdens. I thought it was interesting that they are um, proposing in there to not require the notice of uh, privacy practices in many situations. What are your thoughts about changes to HIPAA? Maybe that one in particular or, you know, just what needs to be done with HIPAA from your perspective perspective as a practitioner so my thought on HIPAA is that we did not do enough to educate people on what it really meant yes and my view is is that a combination of lack of education on the part of the government mm -hmm. because 
you take a look at finance, for example, the FFIEC has done incredible job of educating organizations and banks on financial information security, and they have very robust organizational structure set up to do so. And with healthcare, they did not fund a similar structure. There are some incredible experts employed by OCR and the government that still are there that provide incredible services. However, there's just not enough of them. Mm-hmm. And when there's a lack of information combined with a lot of scare tactics used to scare organizations into compliance, a lot of people were just hesitant to do anything, even though the types of information sharing that are specifically in the December 10th and January 21st, January 21st NPRMs, mm-hmm. there's already structures and the ability to share that information in those cases. However, sure. people just aren't aware of what HIPAA really means. And sadly, it's been reduced from a framework that can be used for continual quality improvement in a healthcare organization to something where you check a bunch of boxes because the insurance company wants you to be compliant or you're afraid of getting a massive fine. Mm -hmm. And I think we had a missed opportunity with HIPAA to help align it with existing quality improvement initiatives in healthcare. And we missed and I think that these existing, these new rulings, while they're great and they make items more explicit, still don't align HIPAA itself with continual quality improvement. And ultimately, that's where we need to be in healthcare to be able to build that shared vision with healthcare executives that talk about quality improvement, improving scores in certain areas, and along what they teach in nursing school and what they teach in medical school, we need to be able to align with that. And I think while these are great in they provide that more explicit information for people that may not have been educated or understood previous iterations of the privacy and security rule, it's great for that, but it doesn't build what we need to be able to effectively promulgate it across the organization using the same methods and techniques that are used for improving patient care. Those are very good points. And in fact, a couple of things you mentioned, I want to kind of reiterate for our um, listeners. One was about how it is, it's a pretty comprehensive framework, at least initially when it was created, but you mentioned that there was not a good job of communicating how to implement it in the practitioner settings, I believe is what you said. And I think that's a problem with a lot of organizations with just their um, even security and privacy policies in general. It seems like you write them and then they're like, oh, well, we've got our policies, but are you actually following them? <laughs> and it seems like that's kind of what was done with HIPAA as well, because I think it's got some good things in there. But like you said, people don't understand it. Even people who have been 
supposed to be following HIPAA for years and years who are doctors and insurers, they still don't really understand it. Like you said, it's like a checkbox activity for them, which is too bad, you know? <laughs> it's uh, kind of sad it's, it's uh, viewed in that way. So if, if you could change HIPAA, it sounds like you are saying you'd align it more to the quality delivery of, of patient care. And since it is for insurers too, for how insurance is managed for the insureds, um, do you think this is on the right path then, what they're doing with these NPRMs or? I yeah, think it's a, I think it's a Band-Aid. Yeah, Band-Aid. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it's a Band-Aid for something much bigger, and you need something more invasive to be able to truly address the issue at the root cause. Because we expect our healthcare practitioners to perform root cause analysis when an event happens, and we expect them to address root causes through process changes. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing that with security. And I think we have an opportunity to do so. How, and I think that by talking to our chief quality officers or people in charge of quality or our chief nursing officers and aligning with what they do and how they educate, we have a better opportunity for improving security. So that's a very important action I think our listeners who are under HIPAA should do. Include as a key stakeholder your, um, what what was the title you had for him, the, the quality care officer? So in larger healthcare organizations, you're going to have people in char- uh, chief quality or chief patient safety officer. Even if you have a smaller organization, you're going to have someone in charge of quality. Mm-hmm. And, or you talk to your chief nursing officer. This is what they do. This is what they live every day. Talk, talk to the doctors, talk to the nurses, because they're being told to emphasize improving quality. So anything you do has to be in line and in sync with how they improve it. So they need to be part of your HIPAA team, for sure. Ab- absolutely. And then how do they coordinate if they do with, like, the business associates? Or is that a comp- another area? That is another area. And again, based on the relationship a business has with their business associate, that's going to be done via a multidisciplinary team in any organization. So mm-hmm. you'll have your chief medical information officer, you'll have your legal team, you'll have your people from the business, and every relationship is different, and I can't sit there and tell you how to deal with your business associates because every single one you do is going to be completely different. Okay, and that's definitely fair, and that's uh, every every entity is unique. You know, we're already coming down to the end of our show. Our time has went gone by so quickly, but before we go in about one or two minutes, you know, for those listening and, and most of the people listening are probably not in the healthcare space, but they have health data. They have their own individual uh, patient data. 
So in one to two minutes, what's the key point or lesson that you would want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? The biggest point I can make is that there are a lot of people in these organizations. Everybody wants to do what's right by the patient. Everyone wants to make sure that patient's information is protected. And the more forward-thinking chief medical information officers and doctors look at cybersecurity as an extension of patient safety. It really is. Cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant emphasis now within healthcare to make sure that protecting the patient also now includes how their patient's information is protected, stored, and processed. And your provider is going through a learning period like everybody else. We're all learning. We all have the best of intents. But ultimately, we all want to do what's right. And that's something that a lot of people need to real need to realize. Your cybersecurity is very difficult. However, it's something that we're all working towards because ultimately, to bring it back to something we said earlier, it's our friends, it's our families, it's the people we see in church, it's the people we see every day. And we're not in this field to be famous or to be rock stars. We're in there because we want to help out our community and increasing cybersecurity and privacy awareness and doing more to protect our patients helps us serve our community better. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Mitch. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners got a lot out of uh, the many great points that you provided. So everyone out there listening, look for his, um, his comments and his articles that he puts out, just Google for him, you'll find it. So uh, today I've been speaking with Mitch Parker, Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director at Indiana University Health. And we've been talking about health and patient data security and privacy security within hospital systems and so on. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Well, just let me know. You can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. If you cannot listen to our scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And I have all of my show recordings out there on iTunes, Mobile Play, all those other apps that you love to use, in addition to, of course, VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. And just contact me for any help you might have or need for information security or privacy activities and check out my YouTube channel as well. Until our next show, please think about this. Ask those you do business with. Ask those you go to get your physicals at and have your healthcare provider uh, giving you care and, and who you work for even. Ask them if they are doing all that they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. 
Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe. 